Thanks for downloading show 108 of the C-Suite podcast, uh, the fifth in our special series of episodes that we're recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and their own Without Borders podcast, where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. Uh, My name is Russell Goldsmith, and once again, I'm co-hosting the show with Taito's founder, Brendan Craigie, and joining us online is the the CEO of one of the most recent businesses to achieve unicorn status in the UK, uh, which they achieved just a few weeks ago in May this year, and that's Greg Jackson of Octopus Energy. So welcome to the show, Greg. Uh, does it feel any different being introduced as a unicorn CEO? I think um, on a personal level, it's something to be you know, proud that we've achieved a, a sort of public milestone. But I think the reality is that I, I said this is really just fuel for stage two of our mission. And... Um, you know, we're what we've got about 5% market share here in the UK now. So we've got a way to go in the UK. And then we've got the entirety of the rest of the planet. And by the way, during that journey, we've got to decarbonize the energy generation and transmission systems. So <laughs> yeah, the mission really has only just begun. Just just a few things to be getting on with then. Yeah, exactly. Well, well look, let, let's start by getting you to give us a quick overview of, of the business. Hey, so yeah, Octopus was, uh, Octopus Energy was founded in 2015. And Uh, We kind of saw the opportunity to use technology to uh, drive a dramatically more efficient system, not just here in the UK, but but globally, uh, as has happened in so many other sectors. And uh, I think energy is probably just about the largest undisrupted sector globally. But not only could we use uh, technology to drive down prices, notoriously energy has suffered from terrible service and, and tech can really help fix that. And then you know, at least as importantly, possibly most importantly, uh, we think technology may be the key to helping make the switch to renewables faster and cheaper than anyone thinks. So that's kind of the, the, the reason we started the business. And, and um, we were backed by Octopus Investments, who have got you know, three or four billion pounds invested in renewable generation. Uh, they're also got Octopus Ventures, which is you know, the VC behind some of the biggest UK tech success stories. Things like Zoopla, Love Film, Grey, Secret Escapes, Magic Pony, Secret. Anyway, it goes on. So, so we've got great investors. And I think we had a really important mission we can be proud of. Uh, but we had a bit of a mountain to climb. You know, I think people, even just four years ago, looked at the energy sector and said, how can you take on the incumbents? You know, they're kind of massive might. Uh, but I think the reality is, like so many sectors, if you really focus hard on what you want to achieve, for example, in our case, dramatically better customer service, dramatically greater efficiency in the fight against climate change. If you refocus really on what's really important, you've got a fair chance. And I guess where we are today then is we've got about 1.5 million household customers here in the UK. We've got uh, about 700 uh, team members. Uh, we've just opened in Australia. Uh, we've made an acquisition in Germany. And you know we're beginning to take this kind of British tech success story in the world of, of clean energy global. But your background's not energy or, or utilities, though, is it? No, nothing. Look, I mean, the people at Uber didn't come from Addison Lee. Uh, no. You know, uh, Jeff Bezos wasn't a, a bookstore keeper. I think the reality is that when you, I, I'm from a tech background, my co founders and I previously built a business which built uh, tech platforms for a variety of enterprises, usually large enterprises, which help them uh, you know, develop e-commerce capability or, or go through the digital transformation themselves. Uh, and what we spotted was in every sector, uh, as we went through that kind of digital revolution across the early 2000s, 
people said, it's not going to happen to us. So I remember when clothing retailers said, you know, obviously online is fine for books, but people are going to need to try and close. And of course, then we saw ASOS and how many others. Um, I remember, you know, talking to the marketing director of a pub chain uh, who said, I don't really care about the internet because I want people in my pubs, not at home using computers. You know, and I showed her that there were 200,000 searches a month just in London for pubs that serve food. It was like, look, this revolution is happening in every sector. And and when we started in energy, you know, people said, you know, look, technology doesn't matter in energy. It's a commodity and da, da, da. And and of course, I'd heard that so many times before. It was almost like uh, that is the... The proof there's an opportunity. So I think to bring technology into a sector that's not used to it, a technology into a sector that almost rejects it, has been a tremendous opportunity for us. And thinking about thinking about that, Greg, you obviously helped other industries with their kind of digital transformation. Were there any kind of mistakes you made in, in your previous life that when you came to kind of trying to build up Oxbus Energy were, were helpful to, to learn from? Yeah, you know what, I think it was fantastic to have learned multiple times, particularly challenges of digital disruption. So, for example, one thing you learn when you're building tech is tech can do anything. So every idea you have, you can build it. But before you know it, you create these great big unwieldy beasts uh, full of every option and idea that no one ever uses, but you've got to maintain them. So I think, you know, a good learning for me was when I looked at Uber. You know, for the first four or five years, Uber didn't allow you to book a car in advance. Now, Anybody from the taxi industry, anybody would have said, look, the first thing you've got to do is be able to take advanced bookings. But what Uber knew was the problem with advanced bookings is it creates an enormous number of workflow complexities. Like, now what happens if the driver gets stuck in traffic or doesn't turn up? You've got to suddenly look after that. Um, and you don't have to do that if it's all real time. And so I think we took a lot of the same kind of insights that said, look, we're not going to have every knob and whistle. What we're going to do is focus on creating astonishing user experiences and real digital innovation on what matters for decarbonization. But loads of people are going to be saying to us, can you do this and what about that? And we'll, you know, we'll kind of resist that in order to deliver successfully the stuff that really matters. That is a really great insight. Do you, how, do you, how do you kind of d- distinguish between things which are, don't, aren't the things to do now versus the things to do in the future? How do you kind of, what process do you go through to make those, those calls? Yeah, well, the first thing is we've got a really clear mission, right? Our job is to use technology to drive uh, better value, fairer pricing, better service, and a green revolution. So if things are not consistent with that, they're quite low down the priority list, right? So there are loads of things we could do that wouldn't help in that mission. I think the second thing is, in our business, we kind of have an inverted pyramid. So in loads of companies, what you do with things like that you know, you'd have a, a big team preparing deck after deck, and then they turn up at management and they present this 500 page deck and you give them all the feedback and they go back and you waste months and months doing it. Um, and, and, and that process really typically leads to a lot of unnecessary ideas gaining traction because by the time you're getting that kind of really right, that, that kind of feedback up and down the ladder, you can't kill everything. So what we do instead is we, we, we say, look, for us, it's an ongoing conversation in a very flat company. So the, the people talking to customers on the phones and via email uh, have access to what we call the, the comms channel on Slack. By the way, we've got one for tech as well. And every time a customer makes a, a remark about something we have or haven't got, something that isn't clear or whatever, 
it goes into those channels and it gets typically same day feedback from someone who's basically director level. So instead of like going through a big requirements gathering session, we're continually gathering the requirements. We're continually filtering what we think is important. And then when we make decisions, they're really, really well founded. Um, so a very flat structure where, where managers don't say like, you know, to, to middle managers or, or you know, teams of product developers, go away and build a 500 page deck where we actually get our hands dirty means that we maintain this consistent focus, uh, you know, throughout every, we don't have many levels. In fact, we don't even have an organogram. But let's assume we had an organogram. Then throughout every level in the business, you've got kind of people getting their hands dirty and taking responsibility. And that way, you, the machine doesn't run away with itself. Sounds like it would be like a really very long horizontal sheet. For the oral. Yeah, it's also by the time you've written it out, it would be out of date, you know. Um, so I, I think for us, I'm really proud that we don't have an organogram. Yeah. You, you know, um, people know what they do. They know who they work with and know, they know what they're responsible for, that they can make their own decisions. Um, and it's very, very non-hierarchical. Brilliant. Um, let's come back to this topic of, of becoming a unicorn. I, I asked at, at the start, you know, if it made a difference to you personally being introduced as a unicorn CEO. What about, you know, the impact that that milestone has had in terms of changing the perception of the company as a, as a whole? Yeah, it's interesting. Right? I think, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud that we kind of became a unicorn right in the middle of the worst bit of the COVID crisis in the UK. So, uh, you know, we, we got a, an international investor over the line when we were kind of facing uncertainty and meltdown, uh, you know, to the extent that, you know, we haven't been able to shake hands on the deal yet. But the, um, I think what that meant was we were really sensitive that the last thing we wanted to do, as some companies do, is go out there trumpeting the, the unicorn status and instead be very cognizant that this is a long-term mission. Uh, the investment here is merely to enable the next stage of, of, of driving our you know, transition to cheaper, greener energy system. And it's, it's kind of given us, I guess, a proof point that international investors believed in our approach on that mission but what we haven't done you know in and of itself it's not success and you know i guess one of the great business philosophers of all time kenny rogers the country and western music singer there's a line in one of his songs that, uh, which is um you know you never count your money when you're sitting at the table and, and i think it's not about money it's about you can't declare any level of success while you're still in the game and, and I think for us, that is such an important part of this, that having the external validation from real experts, you know, one of the biggest, in fact, Australia's biggest energy company in this case, and, you know, there are a dozen others who were in the final stages, is helpful, but no more than that. I think when Brendan and I started this uh, series, we weren't expecting quotes from Kenny Rogers <laughs> coming to it, but uh, tremendous. It's a, very, it's a good quote. Um, <laughs> you you talked a little bit earlier, Greg, about how, you know, there, there's always been this kind of scepticism about di different, more traditional sectors being, or industries being disrupted. And we've seen that happen very successfully within financial services. And, you know, like, I guess probably when you started out, probably people looked at energy as being this very traditional sector that'd be hard to, hard to disrupt. How, how did you sort of go about approaching that? Um, so how did we go about disrupting energy? I remember sitting around the table when we were sort of getting the first tranche of investment 
And there were about 20 people around the table, um, many of them from an energy background, that were very, very skeptical. But there was one who totally got the, the focus on customer, the focus on technology, and the focus on uh, driving, a, speeding up the green revolution was something that, you know, is a distinct mission that gave us a chance. And that person was Simon Rogerson, who was the founder and the chief executive of Octopus Group, our um, investors. And, uh, you know, Simon's an entrepreneur and, and he could see that what really mattered is, do you have something distinct for customers, for the market and for society? And we did. And um, at the time, you know, they said, like, how are you going to displace the big six? And, and I think now I look at it as being, it's like a Godzilla movie poster in that, uh, you know, you, you kind of, we were the little guys in the street in Manhattan and you're looking up at the skyscrapers of big six, but behind the skyscrapers, you could actually see the real threat, which is societal change. It's customers who are so unhappy. Uh, it's governments who feel these large companies have failed to deliver their part in the mission to fight climate change and transform the system. And it's climate change itself. And, and, and that's the kind of Godzilla threat upon that sector. Right. And so our job really has been to like look at those things and say, look, they're not big, strong, kind of robust, built to last structures the way you think they are. They're actually facing absolute imminent threat. And it is our job, right, to, to, to recognize that threat and to be you know, the opposite of those companies so that uh, as they start to crumble, so we can grow in their place. And I think that's what's happening. You know, I, I don't take any pleasure. In the, in, the, in the kind of travails of, of rivals. But I do look at that and say, look, you know, if they'd underinvested for 20 years in their customers and their software, and, and you know, they actually went, someone went as far as to deny climate change, right? They're stretching the elastic too far. And so what you're seeing now is, you know, here in the UK, you know, publicly listed ones, you've got share prices that are, you know, multifold lower than they were five years ago. You've got kind of uh, increasing consolidation and acquisition. Uh, and there's just going to be more of that. You, 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 I guess my proudest moment in this business actually was helping make the energy price cap happen. Now, I'm an entrepreneur. I hate government interference in markets. But let's be clear, the energy market is basically designed by the government anyway, largely with the help of those large enterprises because their greatest strength is not customer support, it's lobbying. Um, and so um, when, when we identified their pricing practices and we graphed them and we got the media interest and we took it out to the government and the government took action what you really started to see was um uh, you know all of that pent-up customer annoyance frustration um turned into legislation that rightly made their lives hard right and it didn't make their lives hard because the government were being unfair the government was just making up for the fact that when you've got an opaque pricing market with lots of people who've tried, you know, for example, switching energy company and found they just went from one to another that was bad as each other. Eventually, the government takes action, customers win, and companies on the side of the customer will benefit from that. So I guess that's kind of how, how we've looked at this market. And, and, and the reason that's my proudest moment is, you know, look, we, we save one and a half million households money, many of whom would have saved money anyway because they, they kind of know how to engage in the market. Not all, though. But through the price cap, 11 million households saved on average £100 a year. And we were a major part of making that billion pound a year saving to UK households whilst driving the fight against climate change. 
It's fantastic. You know, congratulations on that. That's a huge success. Um, you, you kind of like um, hinted a little bit about the fact that you have kind of a very unique company culture. Um, and, you know, you talked a little bit about the flat structure and having no org chart and just reading a few articles about your business and how you structure things, especially in order to kind of um, support that ethos around customer service. It's, it sounds like you're doing a lot of very cool and interesting things. Could you could you kind of maybe share a little bit about that? Yeah, well, first of all, it was uh, I quoted Kenny Rogers a minute ago, so it's slightly more conventional. I think it's Drucker the uh, business writer and, and um, expert who said culture each strategy for breakfast, right? And uh, I think we had the opportunity in this business to start off with an absolute focus on, on creating the right culture. And, and um, over the four or five times I've been a CEO, every time I've learned more and more about kind of how to do a better job. And this was the place that I got to like deploy everything I'd learned. And, um, let me give you a couple of quick stories, actually, that's all right. So I once ran a, a small business that previously had been owned by a large enterprise. And um, Tina, who was on reception, uh, was also the person that did customer service. We looked after a number of small retailers. And one day, Tina was on the phone to uh, a customer. And I was walking through reception. There were a few people around. Uh, you know, and I heard her on the call. And now I'd been through Procter & Gamble management training. So obviously, as a bright graduate from a great university in P&G management training, I kind of had a lot to help with. So I leaned into Tina and I whispered some words in her ear to help with the call. And um, she finished the call, kind of, I mean, consummate professional, put the phone down. And then she gave me an unbelievable death stare. And she, uh, forgive me for the language here, you might want to beep it, but she said, for sake, Greg, I bring up two boys and I've got an unemployed husband. I do this on the poxy salary this company pays me. I was here before you and I'll be here when you're gone. I love this company. If I can do everything I do and I love the company more than you do, you don't need to tell me what to do. All right. And, and this, there was this kind of 30 seconds of stunned silence, particularly there's a lot of people around the room. And I just realized she was right. And I gave her the biggest hug. And she, that moment, she taught me to trust people. And I think one of the biggest things for me is that, you know, most enterprises have incredible recruitment programs to find the brightest, most motivated people who've got ideas and energy. And then they bring them in and they drown them in process and instructions and rules. And actually, they lose all of the magic that is inherent, not only in everyone, but especially in the people they've just hired. And, and the job really of, of a company like ours is that we set the mission, the direction, and we're absolutely clear about what we're meant to achieve and what our standards are, but then set fee, put people free to deliver it. And I think that has two or three really big benefits. First of all, you know, look, we're all people. We come to work as a human being. If we hang our personality up at the door, if we cease to be motivated by the intrinsic desire to, to deliver success for ourselves, our customers, our colleagues, then uh, you know, we're ceasing to be ourselves, And on a purely human level, to be not yourself for eight or 10 hours a day is not a cool outcome. But then actually, if you're working for the things that matter to you, not because a boss is standing with a carrot stick or you've got a bunch of KPIs you've got to report on on Monday's meeting or whatever it might be, if you're working there because you want to deliver the thing that really matters, you're gonna do a better job and you're gonna do it with more joy. And then you end up with this great virtuous spiral because productivity is higher, attrition is lower 
you get the right kind of people wanting to join you, people who uh, they then want their friends to join. And, and, and that, you know, we're not perfect. Of course, sometimes this doesn't work. But 5% of people don't want to do a great job. You know, 10% of people might just want to do a great job, but they want to put really tight boundaries around it. That's all cool. But for most people, this approach uh, works incredibly well. And, and for us as a company, it works well. But it changes everything we do. So, for example, our CTO, one of my co-founders, you know, one of the design missions of our technology platform, Kraken, that is at the core of everything we do, is that internal users are as important as customers. It's got to be a joy for our team to use because it is enabling them to deliver great customer outcomes and, and, and enjoy their jobs. And, and if a small tweak in Kraken makes their lives easier, that's incredibly important. So, for example, one thing we do is uh, something called Jaegering. And it, it, there's some film, Project Jaeger, in which two people collectively drive a machine and when we do a jaegering session what happens is our tech team come and sit with our ops team and they sit together looking after customers and the tech people learn how well the platform is delivering or not on all the things that our team needs to look after customers and then they go away from there because as tech people they'll know I, I saw that happen a lot and i can automate that or wow you know we should have a bit of machine learning that prevents that thing ever happening so what you then do is you've got a, a sort of self-reinforcing cycle of elevating the internal user to, you know, I mean, James, the CTO, says godlike status, and it's our job to serve them. Now, the reinforcing cycle there is to make the platform better so they're happier. They look after customers better, which enables us to get us the permission to make the platform better and so on. So a couple of examples there about the way we work. It sounds like you've got an incredible relationship with the team. What I was thinking, as that team has increased, I mean, you said you're now at 700 people. How do you, you know, navigate that need to communicate with individuals and different parts of the company versus addressing, say, the entire team? Especially, I mean, again, you mentioned, you know, you've got now offices in different regions as well. And also, even in your current office where people are now currently working, you know, from home during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, we talk about the pandemic separately in a second, if you like. But I think, um, I mean, the first thing is, like, there's a couple of interesting external measures. You know, our glass door, I think, is 4.6 or 4.8 out of 5. By the way, our trust part is 4.8 out of 5. It's not a coincidence that they both kind of hide together, because I think, you know, that is, again, back to self-reinforcement. And typically, you know, a good company is 3.5 out of 5. You know, our rivals are typically sort of 3.2, 3.6. So, you know, when I look at that space, that's working well. Now, don't get me wrong, though. There is absolutely zero hubris or arrogance about that. You've got to be humble because it could all go wrong tomorrow. So to your question about how do we do it, you know, it's kind of, it is an absolute constant focus on what are the uh, things that are working and not working organizationally. Because I think if we get the organization right, if we get the people right, the business will follow. So um, time and again, it's like, particularly we're recruiting new managers, is helping them understand, I would rather we lost as a team than we won as individuals, all right? If someone gets something wrong, the first thing you do is put your arm around them because they probably feel terrible about it, all right? The most important thing is think about how they feel because if we look after them now, then first of all, people know not to be defensive, they know not to feel threatened. But the people who've made the mistakes today are the ones who'll be... <laughs> You know, won't make those again, right? So let's welcome it. And, and I think, so that, that focus on both micro and macro versions of the things that drive culture 
is incredibly important. You know, we have a super high bandwidth communication. So every customer can get hold of every director, um, every team member can. And uh, we get the whole company together every Friday for what we call family dinner. Uh, we used to do it from the office locations, linking them all by video. And I'd talk through what's worked well in the week, what hasn't, and, and where we're going, and you know, kind of what's important. Uh, now we're doing it uh, by video during COVID, uh, by, um, by Zoom. You know, a 600 person Zoom call on a Friday afternoon is pretty special, actually. Incredible atmosphere. Uh, the chat panel live with everything from people being proud or like celebrating each of the successes through to banter and, and, and amusement at different backgrounds. And I think really all of that, everything is about remembering every company faces the same risk in organizationally and most fall prey to it, which is, you know, the people in technology, people in IT will start to hate the people in the business because like the, the idiots, like, you know, they keep doing this. I keep having to go and do it. And then the people in, um, you know, the business, people in business will say, look, technology never delivers. They're always late. The functions don't work. And, uh, you know, this platform never works and all that stuff. And, um, you know, operations will say, look, marketing, keep doing these things. They never tell us we have to deal with all the chaos. And marketing will be like, operations can never deliver what we've sold to customers. And, and you got all those things. But if you bring people back together and you have really high bandwidth communication, what it does is it reminds you that when something goes wrong, it's not because they're incompetent. And it's not because they don't care. It's because we're all striving to deliver the best thing we can. And we're all great people. And so when we see something go wrong, for example, you know, our platform, you know, every now and then we'll have an outage and the tech team will write up what's going on and they'll put it out there for everyone who used it to know what happened because that transparency, non-defensiveness says that we're really sorry. We take massive responsibility for delivering this for you. But of course, we're developing stuff at hundred miles an hour. We're changing the wheels while the, while the car's moving in support of bringing more customers more efficiently and, and delivering a better platform. And if we all understand that and we remember how great each other are, then we don't end up with those kind of organizational barriers where every function starts kind of losing respect for each other. You, you um, ex- explain there how, you know, obviously COVID is, is impacting internally on the business. What, what about externally? What's, what's been the impact of the, the last few months? Uh, look, I mean, the first thing is, yeah, as a business, we, we support one half million people. And among those are people whose health is, I mean, worse. Um, you know, people who died of COVID, right? Um, sadly in Britain too many and um, then there are those whose health have been impacted who you know really suffered uh, and our customer base has you know a lot of people in those categories uh, there are then the people who've lost jobs uh, or have got uncertainty about what the future holds even those who've been furloughed and don't know you know what what, what companies are going to do at the end we don't know whether we're going to experience the deepest economic recession of you know since since we started recording these or whether we'll have a v-shape and bounce back yeah, and businesses, we've got business customers who, you know, if you're in the pub and leisure sector, for example, I mean, it's brutal. There is nothing you can have done. So I think um, for us, the first thing is really recognizing the impact on uh, so many people in the population. Uh, I think the same thing, by the way, is with our team. You know, we've got people on our team, we've had relatives who've been impacted. Plenty of them, you know, although we've ensured everybody stayed fully paid and fully employed where, where they're not in direct contact with the, customer, uh, the public physically. And even there, we've made sure they've been fully paid and, and retained. But, um, you know, some have got spouses, partners, 
other relatives who haven't been so fortunate. So the impact on our customer base is massive. You know, on some of our team is big. And then we've got to recognize it's, this is the most unequal thing I've ever seen happen. For people who've kept their jobs, work from home, don't have kids, have got a nice house, right? That they're enjoying not having to spend money on commuting. They're not spending lunch money on prep. You know, uh, they're not going out in the evenings. Their financial position's never been better. But for others who, with no warning, lost their jobs or who've had to spend, you know, four housemates, you know, each in a single room trying to work all day with access to one shared kitchen that you get a couple of hours in. I mean, you know, I've never seen anything so brutally unequal. And I think um, as we look to recover from this as a society and as companies, we've really got to understand those very different outcomes because we cannot assume the impact of COVID has been the same on everyone. Uh, so for us, in our conversations with government, with the regulator, with our own team, and with our customers, really trying to ensure that you know, we focus on helping those who truly need it most and recognize that some people are actually better off. It's going to be a really important part of develop, delivering a sort of united recovery. I think the biggest issue for me, if I look externally, you know, is, is you've got the choice at times like this. You know, do we come together? Do we unite in recovery? Or do we divide one person against another? You know, we've seen that so often in, 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 in recessions. Um, and then similarly, you know, do we, uh, as a society, deal with the economic impact by cutting? Does government cut expenditure everywhere to try and you know, restore its coffers? Or do we invest in, you know, a brighter future? In fact, do we invest in a greener future and, and, and create jobs and economic recovery that way? So I think for me, when I'm looking externally and, and really talking to stakeholders, as well as making investment decisions in this business, you know, I'm really working hard to drive this kind of united, we're in it together recovery, driven by investment in a green future. On that point, Greg, you, you've obviously mentioned that you're involved in some discussions like at a policy level and, and or, you know, influencing policy. What's, what's your sense of the mood, the broad mood, you know, like, are you kind of like an outlier? Or do you think that there's a broad consensus around that? Yeah, I'm actually really pleased that here in the UK and in many countries, uh, what we've had, uh, we've had a taste actually of a better environment. Like, you know, we, we've all seen the photos from space. Uh, we've seen the stats about reduced carbon emissions. We've seen empty roads. We've seen streets that kids are playing in. And we've seen, you know, people beginning to cycle so much more. Uh, and even in energy, you know, electricity generation in the UK has never been greener. In fact, it's been so green. We've been so heavily bias towards renewables during this period because total consumption is down. Renewables have been a bigger and bigger proportion. There have been times when we've had excess green energy and we've been able to give it away for free to customers. So I think the, um, you know, these, these tastes, these glimpses of what a green world can look like have actually been quite appealing to many policymakers and, and stakeholders. And I'm quite optimistic that, you know, we we don't build back as we were, but we build back better. Yeah. So you think you actually don't think that the a potential economic downturn is going to have a detrimental effect on the environmental agenda? There's a there's a risk that in the very short term it could because you know like what we've seen oil prices plummet, you know, natural gas prices the same, and that is going to make it you know a sort of tempting place for the early phase of the recovery. But I think the medium to long term, what we're going to see is uh, there is, there is st still so much private capital available 
We just need to unlock it into green investment. And again, that's the UK and globally. But, you know, in the UK, there is 300 billion pounds in ISAs. Never mind the money from, you know, large funds and, and high net worth. I mean, now that 300 billion pounds in ISAs currently can't really be invested directly into renewable generation. So there are going to be lots of opportunities for the government to make simple policy changes that unlock enormous amounts of money to drive that recovery. Now that recovery will create jobs. Those jobs will get us out of recession and will grow into a greener future. You've still got to rely though on that human, I guess, understand. I mean, I've, I've seen pictures as soon as the people were heading down to the beach and they disappeared, it was a complete and utter mess. I've seen reports about how many face masks are currently in the ocean now. I mean, there's still so much education, isn't there, to, to, to be done? There is, but I think, you know, it's really interesting. We, we were educated for decades about carrier bags, right? Time and again, governments and campaigns would show us photos of dolphins with a carrier bag on the nose or whatever. Everyone still bought carrier bags, right? Because we don't think we can make a difference on our own. But as soon as the government brought in the 5p charge on carrier bags, demand for carrier bags dropped 90 to 95%. Now, let's put that in perspective. You're buying 20 pounds worth of shopping and you will struggle home with it. You'll be balancing the eggs on your elbows. You try and unlock your door because you didn't want to spend 5p on a carrier bag, right? So what we need is, yes, education is fantastic. And education, if it generates pressure on politicians and companies to change, change the rules and, and change the things they create, is very effective. Uh, but I think as, as individuals, everyone looks there saying, look, I would love to make a difference, but I'm not gonna be able to do it on my own. So what we really need is governments and companies to take that action on a mass scale. And by the way, we've seen it with masks. Fascinating things with masks, right? Tons of research on this now. Uh, so COVID face masks. If you make a rule, you gotta wear them, you get almost total compliance. If on the other hand, we rely upon individuals a, a, a relatively small fraction, 20, 30% of people wear them because no one wants to look like a doofus, right? Now, you're not really looking like a doofus, but you don't want to be the first mover. There's tons of research on this in, in, in crime prevention. You know, like if you see someone being mugged, if you see something in the street you don't like, no one wants to be the first mover. But as soon as you know that others are involved, you'll join too. And I think, you know, really understanding relatively simple insights like that are going to be the key to unlocking a green future. Well, well, let's stick on this this environmental topic. At the end of May, you announced that you're aiming to launch your future energy research centre in autumn. I was doing a little bit of reading on this, um, or I should say the fall for our, our US uh, listeners. It, it sets out to develop new models for a clean energy system, is, is what the, uh, the release was saying. Do, do you want to talk us through how that's shaping up? Yeah, look, this is a great example, actually, of, of where, with relatively modest investment, companies can make a massive difference. Um, well, I used to work at a large FMCG company. And one of the things that really, really hurt me was when we created a new product, it had to be tested on animals, right? And I hated that. But if we didn't create new products, then our company would fail because our rivals would create them and they'd get the market share. So what we needed to do as a company was to actually campaign against the thing we were doing. So as a company, we should have been campaigning to say no company should test our animals. That way, we and our rivals were all on the same level playing field, but it's a much better one than the one we were on at the time. And, and I think, you know, if we're looking at things like climate change, we need to do the same. Companies, you know, as a company, we sell a lot of natural gas. I don't want to sell any, right? I want to get to a world where we're not selling gas, but where people's energy needs are met by renewable electricity, right? There may be other things as well, but, but where we're met by renewables. So to create that world, I can't do it alone. 
what we've got to do is create policy frameworks and economic models that will enable governments and companies to adopt uh, systems that drive the move to renewables faster. Now, it's hard for companies to do that because what company, sorry, for governments to do that because what companies tend to lobby for is what suits them today. So right now, governments around the world are being lobbied by companies saying, hey, look, gas is great, it's a clean fuel, or whatever, right? But actually what we want to do is create the model that, create, that, that, that lobbies for the world of the future. And so what we want to do is open source a bunch of uh, econometric models, a bunch of data science, a bunch of physics models that show how um, the system would be, for example, if we'd never had fossil fuels, if it just started out as renewable, that would have been normal. We'd have had a society that looks very much like it is today, only cleaner. But the only way we're going to enable governments to create those policies is to create the models and uh, bring together the scientists and the economists that will, will, will model that for them. So we're going to model it publish it and then hope that governments around the world are able to start adopting those policies to create a fully renewable system uh, but one which is you know it's going to be cheaper right when we get it right uh, it's complicated because for example um there are so many interdependencies if we assume that instead of the way it works today where people basically use electricity without worrying about you know whether it's coming from renewables or not where it's flat priced all the time it's always available in the same kind of level way then of course you end up with the world we've got today. But if you look at a renewables world and you say, look, when the wind's blowing, the sun's shining and there's loads of electric cars, people will charge their batteries, right? And if they charge their batteries at those times, they're making use of the cheapest possible electrons. Now, the revenue from those electrons is new revenue to the system, which lets you go and create more windmills and more solar farms, which puts more of those cheap electrons into the system which enables you to fill more car batteries when the sun's blowing and shining. Eventually you end up with so much renewable generation that you can handle the stuff that people worry about today. Like what do you do when there's not much renewable on the grid? It's like, look, what's going to happen is there are going to be times when we've got uh, vast abundances of it and it's basically free or very, very cheap. And if that means that at times when we've got less available, it's very expensive. Well, let's model that out, optimize the system so that, you know, low income households have got access to cheap energy to heat their households in winter high income households can pay a bit extra and everyone can benefit uh, during the times when it's windy and sunny. That's a different system, right? But someone's got to model it. So we're going to do that. It's really exciting. I think um, often when you get these kind of like recessionary it, it, it sort of stages of the economy, they, it can be like the, the moment of reflection that kind of inspires an entrepreneur to go out and start a new business, you know, either, either out of necessity or because, you know, like, that it's you know it's that moment of reflection how important do you think it is in the world today that you know all new businesses need to have a clear social purpose that benefits wider society it's a great question right i i, I talk about this a lot we're a startup right and that means that we didn't have to retrofit purpose and mission to whatever it is we happen to be doing for us started to do this and that makes our purpose and mission absolutely clear. It's like a, it's the skeleton upon which we build the flesh of the business. And uh, I think, look, there are plenty of entrepreneurs who just want to get rich quick. You know, come up with a scheme for trading some Bitcoin in return for some in-game rewards for a downloadable app with a surprise purchase on a page that catches someone out. That's fine. But if you want to create real value, focus on the fundamentals, focus on stuff that has you know, is not going to change when the wind changes, uh, when different governments get elected, when 
consumer habits change. Focus on the stuff that really matters and bring value to society and unwavering value to customers. And I think you've got a greater chance of creating something that is uh, scalable, that is going to deliver real shareholder value in the long run. And, uh, you know, at times like a recession, you know, there are loads of industries going to get fractured. It is the time to find new forms of value to replace those that are disappearing. So I can't pretend to be optimistic about recessions. They're awful things. Loads of people lose their jobs. But for an entrepreneur, it's really interesting. Right? As an entrepreneur, when you run a business, there are times when the world changes around you. And your first thing is a sort of sense of kind of uh, dislocation. Everything you were planning has suddenly changed. And you sit there going, oh, no, our business is going to be a disaster. But if you can stand back and say, look, the world's changed. And my job is just to invent a new path through the world. All right. That, that's your job. Your job is to say, look, this is how the world is. I've got to invent a new path through it. I, I can't try and go back to the old world. And, and look, it's easy to say that. But I can give you an example, actually. Back in 2007, 2008, when uh, the financial crash hit, our biggest client, I had a business at the time building technology platforms and building um essentially what we built then was marketing websites and um they suddenly experienced a massive drop in demand for you know companies going through transformation because the financial financial crisis no one was investing and um the guy who managed the relationship was at the airport on the way back from the hq and he phoned me up and he said um they're cutting every single agency including us because they can't afford to spend on essentially marketing anymore you know i the world sort of opened, it felt like a hole in the ground had opened and swallowed me up. It was like our biggest client was gone like that. And um, that night I sat there and just thought, look, um, they're getting rid of us because we're a cost center. But if we were a profit center, then they might not get rid of us. And that night we formulated a plan to say to them, look, let's turn these marketing websites into e-commerce platforms and drive sales for you. And not drive sales in a sort of wishy-washy way of our hands around. You'll actually be able to measure them as they go through the checkout. And we'll sell training courses and we'll sell consulting packages and things that back then they weren't selling online. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, uh, they loved the idea because it was going to generate revenue. And that meant that when they chopped every other supplier in our, set, in, in our category, we were retained. In fact, not only retained, but we grew through it. And so I use that as an example because... It's easy for people to say, entrepreneurs, like, you know, when the world changes, think hard about your new path. That's what we did. And back to what I was saying earlier, the reason we were the right partner for that was the fundamentals for us hadn't changed. We were totally client-centric. We thought about the customer, not about ourselves. And that's what we did even through that period. And that we built incredibly efficient, fast-moving, agile technology, which meant that's what clients used to buy from us. And when we had to change the kind of technology we were building, we were agile to that. And so... I think what we'd, what we'd start out on, that we got the fundamentals right, and it meant we, we could handle that very big change. And actually, you know, uh, we grew through that crisis. And, and when I look back at it, and I, and I hope there's some hope here for people who are facing challenge at the moment. You know, when I look back on that, it actually was, it's nothing we'd have wanted, but actually our business benefited. And as we look to... Uh, yeah, even this business today probably wouldn't have existed if we hadn't been through that change. There's lots of things, though, you know, are changing in the world quite rapidly at the moment. I, I want to pick up on something I've I read on your website. 
And that was, so there was a blog post from when you started in 2006. It says, what does it take to create the energy company of the future? And on that post, there's a picture of your leadership team. And that consists of five white males. And I was just wondering, A, has your leadership team changed since then? But, you know, if you were starting now, and I, and that's only four or five years ago, would would that make up, you know, be different? Yeah, look, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm glad we talk about this, right? Um, it's an incredibly important area because I talked to you about the importance of culture. You know, how can you build a culture where everyone feels kind of free to be successful when they look up the company and no one looks like them, right? Um, and I've really learned that listening to the team. It, so where we are today then is, you know, our leadership team, I think it's about 11 people. We don't have an organogram, so I can't be certain. And it's about half women. Um, uh, there's a lot of other diversity. You know, there's loads of LGBT, for example. Um, but, you know, something that was really high, highlighted recently by uh, Black Lives Matter was, uh, you know, there are no black or brown faces in the leadership team, right? Um, so it is a complex area. But I think what happens with startups is whoever you start with, that's kind of who you stuck with at the beginning. It's what you do thereafter that really matters. And I think what, what we did well was, um, you know, we embraced pride. Uh, when, when we started to get senior women, we found that, you know, immediately we were more attractive to more senior women because we could see people like themselves. And now we need to be doing the same in you know, ethnic diversity as well. Uh, I think throughout the company, actually, by the way, we're increasingly diverse. And, and where we've placed ourselves, we're based, you know, our officers that we've chosen are the centre of Leicester, the centre of Soho, and the centre of Brighton. You know, we're aiming for melting pot communities because I think diversity builds real strength in the business. Um, but our next focus now is to make sure that we're reaching into, uh, that our recruitment is reaching into a wider range of communities than we might have done in the past. And I'm going to put a lot of effort into that. Because I, you know, I do want anyone joining the company to be able to look up and see someone like themselves. Good, it's good to hear. Um, well, listen, on, on on this topic of communications, as a tech startup whose origins are in Europe rather than say Silicon Valley, what's been your approach to raising awareness and differentiating yourself in in such a noisy and crowded area? Yeah, well, I think energy is quite an easy sector to do it in. Really, you know, I mean, it's it's been desperate for fresh voices. Uh, the, the stale old ideas of energy companies you know, we're just a commodity no one cares about us it, it's just lazy thinking you know, I used to work at Procter & Gamble where you know, we sold washing powder and if you can make someone care about which brand they buy week in week out on a supermarket shelf I can certainly make people care about which energy company they're with which one is going to rip them off which one's going to you know, try and rob them when they're not not rob them but you know, put the prices up when they're not looking which ones are fighting to create a cleaner energy system uh, you know, which ones are trying to give them great service when they phone up. The opportunity to differentiate in this space is huge. And I think that's created a bit of a global splash for us. So over the last six months, I've had visitors from 15 countries, well, until COVID, in our offices, looking at how we're changing the energy sector. So, you know, if you're going to do it in any sector, this is great. I think the Silicon Valley question is interesting because I was shocked during our investment process that, we had incredible investor appetite from the UK, from Europe, from Asia, and from Australasia. The only place that we didn't was actually Silicon Valley, and it was really interesting. Because I think the US, it's, the US, by the way, is so backwards on energy. Uh, you know, most states, you can't choose your energy supply. You just It's like the DMV. 
you're stuck with whoever the government have kind of put in place, you know. And, and I think um, it makes it hard for them to see the opportunity to revolutionize energy. Uh, so, you, so there's certainly Silicon Valley investment in deep tech, but in consumerization of energy, which, by the way, is so key to decarbonization, right? It, 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 you know, it, that is probably coming from every part of the world except the US. Really that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and having lived there, there are definitely areas, uh, areas of the US which are, you know, shockingly behind Europe. It's quite interesting. Um, just one of the uh, sort of questions we've been asking people is just kind of like, as the um, CEO of your company, what, how do you kind of see your role as kind of the external spokesperson representative of the business? What responsibilities does that come with? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually, that uh, I think when you're a small startup, you can afford to say and do anything. As the business becomes more significant, you're responsible for hundreds, thousands of people. You're responsible for a lot of investor money, for millions of customers, and for staying true to the mission you've set yourself. Uh, and I think uh, there's, a, there's a guy called Giles Andrews who started a company called Zopa. Oh, he's one of the founding team of Zopa, which is the world's first peer-to-peer -peer lender. I was lucky enough to be a non-exec there for a long time. And Giles has this unbelievable sense of integrity um, and what is right. And at every junction in Zopa's development, whenever there was a voice saying, you know, look, there's a quick one over here, Giles' strength of character meant that he took the business in the path that may have been harder, but was true to its character. And I think that's the important thing you know, when, when you're at the helm of a business that really seeks to create societal improvement. And, and so for me, I think as the spokesperson, I've certainly moved from a world in which I would just kind of, you know, throw hand grenades at the old guard to a world in which actually my job is not to do that. It's to build the really positive vision of the future for our company and for our society. Uh, not just here in the UK, but globally. And I think, you know, you build that platform and now you've got to use it wisely. Yeah. So um, I guess following on from that question, I think we've had a, a number of um, CEOs on our series so far, and you definitely come across as a very strong communicator. And I just wondered, is that something that you've always found natural? So <laughs> I think I've always been good at talking. I had to learn to listen. So even back when I was doing my GCSEs, my English teacher, Mrs. Granville, did, uh, you know, she was assessing communication skills. And she said, look, Greg, communication is meant to be like a tennis match. Uh, you know, I knock the ball to you, you knock it back. But what's happening here is I'm knocking the ball to you and then you're running off with it. Then when I was at P&G, you know, there was an enormous amount of effort and uh, sort of training in how to listen. And um, I hope I, I've learned that. By the way, Mrs. Granville is now a customer. Oh, brilliant. Fantastic. Is that out of, out of interest? One of our other questions is kind of what's the best piece of communications advice you've ever had? Is that, is that the best piece of communication advice you've had? It's probably the best piece of advice I've had. But I think the um, kind of thing that is, was most impactful actually wasn't advice. It was something I spotted. We were running a small business and um, there'd been some financial calamity. And um, I and, and one of the other directors we're just in, an, in the office, the management accountant came in to tell us about the calamity. And she was so stressed, so anguished. She was clearly looking down the barrel of gun, the business was gonna go bust, everyone's gonna lose their jobs, it was a disaster. And she told us about, about the issue. 
And the other director sort of um, listened to her carefully and they just smiled and said, don't worry, Judy, that's fine. And um, you saw her relax, her shoulders kind of relaxed and she left the office so much happier. Anyway, when she'd gone, you know, I said to him, by the way, I can't see how that's fine. He said, neither can I. There was no point leaving people stressed about it. And it, it was an unbelievable moment for me where what he did was he absorbed all of her stress, projected calm into the business, and then we could sit together and try and solve the problem. And actually, by the way, we solved it and everything was fine. Yeah. But it was a lot easier to do once you'd kind of absorbed the stress. And I think that thing it, it, it stuck with me forever now, which is it doesn't matter what the situation is. We're never going to deal with it effectively if we wind each other up. Yeah, I think that's brilliant advice, isn't it? If you can disarm a situation like that, it's much easier to be thinking about solutions to problems than if you're kind of like, you know, really completely uptight. Exactly. Um, and and along the way, you know, you've shared quite a few um, great little stories of your, you know, different different uh, times in different companies. But what has been the biggest communications challenge you've you've ever faced? Uh, I mean, look, the hardest thing you ever do, I think, is is um, giving people bad news, right? And um, again, in a smaller business, I had to go to a, a branch office uh, in in a deprived town in an area where the economy was really not good and tell them we were closing the office. And I think that was, you know, what was really important was remembering it's not about me. Like every bit of me dreads doing that, right? Every bit of me doesn't want, and they're gonna hate me and it's gonna be horrible and I'm doing this bad thing. It's not about me. It really is about them. And, and having the generosity of spirit or the thoughtfulness that actually, this is all about you people. And, and, and it, it, it was, by far the, the hardest thing I've ever to think through. And then ever since then, whenever dealing with bad news situations, it's remembering it's about them. I don't know if that answers our, our final question, Greg, but if, if um, and, th and this is something we've, we've asked all our unicorn leaders so far, if, if you were to go back in time and speak to your old self, what guidance would you give about communications? And, and also what steps would you encourage yourself to take in order for you and, and the business to excel in communications? I think in communications, it's um, actually uh, hard truths are better in the long run than easy evasions or even mistruths, right? It, it, actually, back on the vice, another colleague once said to me, well, never tell a lie because you'll have to remember it forever. And I think loads of companies have got these things where there was some bad news, they didn't really want to tell us, so they kind of buried it, and it compounds. So over time, you've got more and more things you can't talk about openly and honestly. Whereas if every time there's an issue, you can lean into it, then you're not building this great big reservoir of, of, of things you can't be open about. You can always be open and transparent. And so I think even though it, it, sometimes in the short term, it is easier to duck an issue or you know, even not tell the truth about it, it is dramatically better to stay open and transparent forever. And, and you know, sometimes I say like, you know, you can't put lipstick on a pig. And as a business, it's better just to not be a pig, right? So, you know, what that does that, if you're always gonna be honest and transparent, it also forces you to make better decisions, right? So uh, hard truths and better decisions are the outcome of, of, of that kind of insight. 
Greg Jackson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us online and record this today. Uh, I think we're just coming up to the hour mark and it's been absolutely brilliant. So uh, yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Greg. Thank you both. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Well, Brendan, an- another great chat with a, with a unicorn leader. Uh, thoughts on, on what Greg shared? Well, I mean, I think this is probably when one of our, our longest episodes, but it, it really didn't feel it as we we're as we we're going through it. And I think the reason for that is just that, you know, Greg has just such a infectious passion for his business and also for the mission of the company that kind of you just it's just very gripping. And then I guess in terms of other thoughts, I, I was just really struck by the way that, you know, he communicates with such sort of compassion and kind of empathy with his audience you know I don't I, I you know you, I just don't see that very often with a, a, in a leader that is able to kind of communicate around what they do and why they're doing it and and doing delivering it in such a very kind of authentic and um, kind of compassionate way um, especially around some of those difficult topics. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. His tone changed, you know, noticeably changed. And I think that's, you know, well, for me, that that sounded very genuine. Totally genuine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I was um, incredibly impressed. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it was um, it was a, it was an excellent, excellent, excellent interview. Um, well, that's actually it for this fifth episode in this series with Taito. Uh, so don't forget, if you want to find out any more information about Octopus Energy, uh, their website is very simply octopus.energy. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments on today's chat and you can uh, share them on our Facebook page, LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter feeds. They're all linked from the top of our website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of Spotify and Apple and if you've liked what you heard please do give us a positive rating and review uh, we're of course available on all podcast apps just search for the C-Suite podcast and hit subscribe uh, you can also subscribe to the Without Borders podcast from our partners at Taito and all the details for that are on their website just head to taitopr.com and uh, click on the podcast link in their top nav bar um, if you are a unicorn leader yourself and you'd like to be part of this series please do get your people to get in touch with our people via the contact form on the website at csuitepodcast.com plus of course anyone can get in touch with us as well uh, to give us any feedback just using the same form uh, finally you can also reach me via twitter using at ross goldsmith or you can find me on linkedin but for now thanks for listening and goodbye